Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be picking up our study this morning in verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And this morning, we are coming to what is probably a very familiar story for many of you, the the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Probably, hands down, one one of the best-known stories of Jesus, even amongst those who have never been to church, even those who have never read the Bible. Many, I, I would say, if not most people in our culture understand what it means to call someone a good Samaritan. Don't you think that's funny? Like just people know what that means. You say, oh, he's a good Samaritan. You have a sense for what that means. If, if, if you were to break down on the side of the road, right, and, and maybe, maybe you have a flat tire or maybe you, you run out of gas, if a stranger were to stop and, and help you out, maybe you know, change your tire, or maybe they go the extra mile. Maybe they take a gas can, they run to town, they fill it up, they come back out to where you're broken down, they pour the gas in so that you can get home. You might refer to them as a a good Samaritan. Or, or perhaps you've seen this one happen, maybe, where, where a person is in the grocery store, and they're in the grocery line, and after ringing up all their groceries, they discover that they don't have enough money to pay for what's now in their cart. And then in swoops the good Samaritan, maybe it was you, right? Comes in behind and says, I got it. I'll pay the difference, expecting nothing in return. You, you would say that that person might be a good Samaritan. What about stories of people who have risked their own lives to, to provide someone uh, help who was in danger? Maybe somebody was drowning, Maybe they were injured in a car accident, right? And they jumped in and, 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 and with no thought for their own lives, they jumped in and tried to help the person. Or maybe it was somebody trapped in a fire and they went in after them. These are heroes, right? Who we might refer to as good Samaritans. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. When, when you and I hear the words good Samaritan, our minds are immediately filled with images of of selfless, compassionate, even heroic acts performed by strangers, right, in order to meet the needs of someone else. In our culture, to be called a good Samaritan, somebody calls you a good Samaritan, that's an, it's an honor, right? That's a high praise. It's a compliment. But that was not the case for the original reader's of the scriptures. It certainly was not the case for the man, the Jewish man that Jesus is talking to in this story that we're going to look at this morning. For the Jews in Jesus' day, the words good and Samaritan, it was an oxymoron, right? They don't ever go in the same sentence unless that Samaritan is dead, and that, they would say, is a good Samaritan, right? That they hated each other. They loathed one another. As we talked about a few weeks ago, they wanted nothing to do with one another. I think it's funny. I think it's odd that today that you even know the word Samaritan. Do you realize that they actually still exist? There's like six or 700 Samaritans still in the world today. 
It's amazing. They, and they still have their priest. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. They still have a priest and they still do sacrifices there on Mount Gerizim in Israel. Um, but it's synonymous with being good. Thanks to Jesus, thanks to this story that he tells, the, 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 this particular good Samaritan is held up as a role model for the type of love and selfless acts that we should perform uh, for others who are in need. As Warren Wiersbe says, this, this Samaritan's one deed of mercy has inspired sacrificial ministry all over the world. There, there are literally hospitals all over the globe called Good Samaritan Hospitals, right? There's a ministry that we partner with every year to bring gifts all over the world called Samaritan's Purse. Imagine how funny that must, would, would sound to somebody in first century Judaism, the idea that good and Samaritan go together. But this story is about more than just showing love and kindness to those in need. That's what we think of when we hear Good Samaritan. But what we need to understand is this story is about something even bigger. It's a story about eternal life. So let's go ahead and jump in and and take a closer look. In Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 25. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So as Jesus and his followers are traveling now, we know that he's making his final journeys towards Jerusalem. He's ministering in the areas of Judea and Perea. He's entering into the last months of his life. And as he's on his way, at some point along the journey, somewhere in Judea or Perea, Jesus has an encounter with a lawyer. And the first thing you need to know when you read this story is that when Luke describes this man as a lawyer, he's not talking about a lawyer in the sense that, that we understand a lawyer. It's not like this is like he's a defense attorney. That's not, that's not what we're dealing with here. This man is an expert in the Mosaic law. He's an expert in the law. He's an expert in, in, the, in the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the first five books, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, he probably had most of it, if not all of it, memorized, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And Luke tells us that this expert in the law stands up and he puts Jesus, he says, to the test. And the tone and the posture of him standing up to to question Jesus suggests that, that this was a challenge. He's challenging this great teacher called Jesus. Let's see. Let's see how this great teacher, Jesus, answers this important question. These are the types of questions that the experts in the law would sit around and talk about. He says, says, teacher, I have a question for you. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's actually not a bad question. In fact, I think 
it's been a couple thousand years, and people are still asking those same questions, aren't they? What, what can I do to inher- inherit eternal life? And some of you, I see some of you shaking your heads like this. Because you know what the scriptures teach. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It's something that's already been done for you, right? But it's a good question. In fact, it's the same question that the rich young ruler is going to ask Jesus in Luke chapter 18. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is a good question, but it's asked with a wrong motive, And it exposes a faulty thinking, the idea that you could in some way earn eternal life. So Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? Who's he talking to? A lawyer, an expert in the law. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answers this man's question with a question. I heard R.C. Sproul talking about, he said, do you know why Jews always answer questions with questions? Why not? <laughs> so that, I thought that was pretty funny. This, uh, the whole Socratic method, right? But he answers his question with, with a couple of questions of his own. He says, hey, you're an expert in the law. You've studied the Old Testament scriptures. You tell me. You tell me, what does the law say? How do you understand it? And in verse 27, the lawyer answered. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyer answers his own question, and he does so by quoting two passages from from the law. The first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and and this portion of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is part of the Jewish prayer called the Shema, the Shema, which Shema is, is the Hebrew word to hear, okay? So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The second passage this man quotes is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And in that verse, it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a good answer. It's a really good answer. In fact, in fact, this is the same answer that Jesus gave when he was questioned about which commandment is the most important of all. Which commandment is the most important of all? Mark chapter 12, Verses 29 to 31, Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater 
than these. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, if, if, you, if you love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, if you do those two things perfectly, you're going to fulfill the Ten Commandments, right? The first four commandments are all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the last six are all about loving your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, you're going to fulfill the Ten Commandments, and you are going to receive, according to Jesus, eternal life. Wow. I mean, theoretically, you can do this. You could earn eternal life by fulfilling the Ten Commandments perfectly, right? By the way, these two commandments, they are linked to each other. They're linked to one another. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Conversely, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, then you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 1 John chapter 4 Verses 20 to 21, John writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not have, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And, and, and if that's not hard enough, do you guys remember what Jesus said? I've, a new commandment I've given to you? You're to love others the way that I've loved you. How did Jesus love us? He gave up his life for us. You, you have to love people in a way that you're willing to lay down your life for them. So Jesus says, Mr. Lawyer, you are absolutely correct. You're right. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you will live. You will live. You will have eternal life. There's just one problem, right? I mean, you know what the problem is, right? You know what it is. None of us, none of us, including this man that Jesus is talking to, have actually done this, right? Other than Jesus, there has never been a human being who has loved God and loved others perfectly. There's never been a human being who has loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time, all the time. Anybody feel like they're close? Don't raise your hand. That was a setup. Don't do it. Don't do it. And here's the thing. If our eternal life, if our eternal life is dependent on our perfect obedience to these two commandments to love God and to love others perfectly? Oh boy, we're in deep trouble, aren't we? We're in deep trouble. Why? Because, because the Bible says that in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us have loved God and loved our, our neighbor perfectly. But here's the thing. The law the commandments, the 10 commandments, all the law of God, 
They were not given to us so that we could have a checklist on how to earn our salvation. That's not why it was given to us. The law was given to us to show us our need for a Savior. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, just a few verses before the one I just quoted. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many? None. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does the law do? When we read the Ten Commandments, what does it do to us? It causes us to realize that we don't measure up. When we read the Ten Commandments, we realize that we are sinners. When we read the Ten Commandments, what we realize is that we need a Savior. So when Jesus says, you're right, all you have to do is follow the commandments perfectly. How's that going? The very next words out of this man's mouth should have been, ah, but Jesus, I haven't done that, right? I've missed the mark. In fact, I still miss the mark. Even though I try, I still fall short. I don't always love God perfectly. I don't always love my neighbor perfectly. Jesus, what, what do I do? What do I do? Man, that would have been a great response, right? That would have been a great response. Jesus could have looked at him. He could have looked at him and he could have said, oh, Mr. Lawyer, that's why I came. That's why I came. I came to do what you were not able to do. I came to fulfill the law. I came to save sinners. That would have been a great response, wouldn't it? His humility, had he done that, had he responded that way, it would have opened the door for him to receive the grace and the mercy of God. But instead, instead of responding in humility, in verse 29, we read, but he, desiring to what? Justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Rather than admit his great need and confess his own shortcomings, this lawyer tries to justify himself. He starts to look for loopholes, right? He says, I, he says okay, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but you know, Jesus, if you really think about it, which I'm sure he had, technically speaking, it really depends on how you define neighbor, doesn't it, Jesus? I mean, who really is my neighbor? But you know what's really surprising to me? Don't you find it just a little fascinating that he jumps right over the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? As if to say, oh, pff, no problem there. Check. Love God perfectly, always, right? He jumps right over that one. Wow. But then he's like, oh, but the neighbor piece... 
That really just depends. I mean, if by my neighbor, if you mean love my wife, she's a pretty close neighbor, my kids, my friends, maybe other Jews who believe and act the same way that I do, who maybe other devout Jews, okay, all right, maybe I'm good. Maybe I'm good. If, if we define neighbor that way, maybe I'm good. He, he's, he's lowering the bar, isn't he? He's lowering the bar. But Jesus didn't come to lower a bar, did he? You guys know, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus in every way raises the bar, right? And he's about to find out that, that neighbor, neighbor is a much broader term than he would like it to be. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, so here we begin the, the, the story of the good Samaritan. Jesus says that there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and since the text doesn't say it, it is probably assumed that this is a Jewish man. Not definitively, but probably a Jewish man. And when Jesus says that, that he was traveling down to Jericho, he really means it. I mean, he really means it. The city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is, it's in the hill country of Judea, and it sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level, okay? So 2,500 feet up on the top of the hills of Judea, you've got this beautiful city of Jerusalem. Jericho, on the other hand, just 15 or so miles away, a little northeast of Jerusalem, about 15 miles away, sits at 800 feet below sea level. 800 feet below sea level. It is the lowest elevation of any city in the world. So literally, literally, the journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho is a, is a downhill descent of 3,300 feet over 15 or so miles. I always like debate, like, would, it be, would I rather climb up to Jerusalem, 3,300 feet over 15 miles, or would I rather go down? Both sound painful, don't they? But this road wasn't just a steep climb. It was also a very dangerous journey. I, uh, when I was in Israel, I recorded this little clip uh, when we visited a spot uh, along this road. And what I want you to notice is, is just how remote and isolated uh, this, this journey is, right? It's beautiful. Isn't that pretty? It's a pretty place. But you have to admit, it is a very rugged and a very remote location. Uh, this particular clip is recorded about two to three miles away from Jericho. So it's sort of, if he's coming down, this is nearing the end of, of the journey. But when you consider just how remote and, and isolated this place is, and then you consider all the rocks in the caves, you see all those rocks and caves that are kind of lining the side of the road there? You get a sense for why this area was known for robbers they would hide in, 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 the, in the caves and behind the rocks, and they would come out and they would attack travelers as they were coming through. By the way, that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons why 
when, when Jews were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem for the festivals, they would travel in large caravans for protection. There's safety, right, in, in numbers. But apparently, apparently this man was traveling alone. And Jesus says that he fell among robbers, robbers who they stripped him, they beat him, and they left him half dead. And in verse 31, Jesus says, now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so you've, so you've got to picture the scene in your minds, okay? There's a man who's lying on the ground. He's lying on the ground somewhere along this road. He's half dead, right? He's been stripped of his clothing. His body is bruised and bloody from his beating. And there he is lying half dead. And at this point, he is unable to do anything to help himself. He's left there to to die. Just think about how rugged that environment is. Think about the intensity of the heat. And I don't know what time of the year that this happened, uh, but I can tell you that day when I filmed that, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to 105 degrees uh, as, as we were walking along that road. How long, how long do you suppose a man is going to survive lying on the ground there in these elements? Not, not long, right? But Jesus says, by chance, a priest came down that same road. And likewise, by chance, a Levite came down that road. How fortunate, what great luck, right? A priest or a Levite, surely, surely a priest or a Levite would help this man out, wouldn't they? You would hope so, you would hope so. Who were the priests? Who were the Levites? Well, first of all, you should know that the priests were Levites, okay, all the priests were Levites. They were all from the tribe of Levi, but not all of the Levites were priests, okay? The priests were a special group of the Levites who had the privilege and the responsibility of overseeing everything to do with the sacrifices at the temple. You may remember from earlier in our, in our study in Luke that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he was a priest. This is what he was. And in the other Levites, you can think of them as uh, assistants to the priests. They had other jobs. They had jobs like they were gatekeepers. They were musicians. They were cleaners. They maintained the temple grounds. Other, other, other Levites were responsible for doing things like helping the, the priests with the sacrifices or leading the music and the worship at the temple. But both the Levites and the priests, they were, they were considered to be servants of God, dedicated to the service of the Lord. And they, they were, you could think of them as like the professional clergy of the day, all right? And just, and, and just like this lawyer, just like this lawyer, they were experts in the law, right? They had studied the, the Old Testament scriptures. They were very familiar. They should have been role models for the people. But Jesus says that both the priest and the Levite avoided the man that was lying half dead 
on the side of the road. And he doesn't tell us why. He doesn't say why they uh, avoided him. You know, maybe they were in a hurry to get home after their time of service at the temple. We know that, that many of the priests actually chose Jericho as the, as the place where they lived because Jericho was a beautiful city in, the, in those days. I mean, it still is, but you know, in, in a dry and barren land, it's, it's warm year-round, whereas in the winter months, it gets a little bit rainy and, and cooler up in, the, in, in Judea, down in Jericho. It's nice. That's why Herod the Great built a, a winter palace in, in Jericho. So many of the priests live there, so it's possible that this guy, he's just in a hurry to get home. Just, it's, it's been a long time of service up, up, in, up at the temple, just want to get home, and so he passes by. It's also possible that maybe, maybe they were concerned that, that the robbers who had attacked this man might still be lingering in the area. Let's move to the other side and, and go around. Or maybe they were concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean by coming in contact with a dead body. Maybe they looked and was like, is he dead? Mostly dead. Um, not sure, don't want to risk it, don't want to become ceremonially, 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 that's a hard word to say fast, unclean. So let's just move to the other side. Well, the truth is Jesus doesn't tell us why they pass by, but what this story implies is that whatever their reason was, they made the wrong decision. They made the wrong choice. Because whether that man was a, a fellow Jew or even if he was a Gentile, right, they should have stopped to help him. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, God commanded his people saying this, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Oh, that sounds familiar. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, do that. I am the Lord your God. You love them. So Jesus says that, that neither the priest nor the Levite stopped to help this man who was in great need. But, but... There was someone who did help. In verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. A what? A Samaritan. Remember, the Jews, they, they loathe the, the Samaritans. And he's talking to this, this religious expert in the law. And he says, a Samaritan. Now, I'm surprised the guy just say, oh, no, forget it. I'm out, right? He stays. He listens. He says, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Wow. Wow. Talk, talk about a plot twist, okay? This is a major plot twist. There, there is no way. There is no way that this lawyer or any other Jew who was listening would have seen this coming. There's no way. They might, they might have. They might have expected Jesus to, 
The priest, he didn't do what he should have done. The Levite didn't do what he should have done. But a common Jew came along and he did the right thing. They might have expected that because it was at that time that the the, the corruption amongst the religious establishment was, was, was sickening. Okay, and so they wouldn't have been surprised to see this teacher challenging the religious establishment, saying, priest, Levite, not doing what they should do, but at least a common Jew did the right thing. They might have expected that. But, 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 a, but a, a Samaritan? Oh, no way. There's no way that they would have seen that one coming. The only reason, the only reason that we read this story and we don't have that type of reaction. Like I say, yep, and a, and a Samaritan came along and he did all this, and you say, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. The only reason is because we do not, we do not understand how deep the rift was between these two people groups. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when we covered the story about Jesus and his disciples traveling through Samaria, you remember what happened to that one? The Samaritans rejected Jesus and his disciples, and John and James were like, you want us to call down fire from heaven? We'll smote this whole village right now. That, they wanted to. They were hoping that Jesus would say yes. Well, when we, when, we, when we went over that passage, I took some time to walk you through the history of why there was such a deep-seated hatred between the Jews and, and the Samaritans. So I'm not going to do that this morning. I want to but I'm not going to. So if you, if you weren't here for that, you can go back and, and listen to that, um, that, that history. But here's what you need to know. You, you just need to know that by the time that Jesus comes along the scene, there are literally centuries, centuries of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. When I say they hated each other, I just, I can't say it strong enough. So the fact that Jesus has made a Samaritan the hero in this story. Just think about the world today. Think about the, 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 the people groups that you would not expect to be made the hero in a story like this, right? You can think of them, can't you? Jesus says it, it, it's, it's a Samaritan. Jesus is holding up a Samaritan as, as the example for his listeners to follow. This, this would have been a total shocker. But through this story, Jesus is going to answer this priest's questions. Who is my neighbor? So let's take a quick look at how this Samaritan responds to the man in need. Jesus says that when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. His heart was, his heart was moved with a genuine care, a genuine concern for, for the situation that this man was in. But you, you got to hear this. His compassion did not stop with a feeling. It didn't stop with a feeling. His compassion moved him into action. It moved him into action. While the priest and the Levite moved away from the man in need, in fact, they might have even been like, oh, that's too bad. I feel really bad for that guy. Bummer, you know? They might have even been sad for him. Maybe they did feel a little compassion or something, but it didn't move them to action. However, the, the, the compassion of the Samaritan moved him toward the man in need. The priest and the Levite moved away. The Samaritan moved toward. 
moved with compassion, Jesus says that he went to him. Guys, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to simply feel bad for someone. It's not. That's a good start. That's a good start. But the next step is to see, God, how can I help? God, how have you equipped me to help in this situation? At the very least, what's the, what's, the, what's the very least that you can always do for someone in need? You can pray for them. You can pray for them. But, but we have to get past just having a feeling. We have to move towards those who are in need, right? We have to move towards them. In James chapter 2, listen to what James says. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and filled. Without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? That's what James says. It's like, great, you had compassion on them, but you didn't do anything to help them. It's great to be moved with compassion, but our compassion needs to move us into action. If you have the ability to help in some way, we need to be asking God, how do you want me to help? Right? Everything we have is His anyway, right? The fact that you're aware of the need should be enough to prompt you to say, God, you obviously want me to do something. At the very least, I want to pray for this person and then say, God, what would you have me to do next? This, this Samaritan, I mean, wow, talk about uh, 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 setting the bar high. Jesus says that he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, using his own resources, whatever resources he had available. The Samaritan began treating this man who was lying there half dead. He, he poured wine over his cuts to try to, you know, clean them out and, and prevent an infection. He applied oil to soothe the pain. And since the, man had been, since the man had been stripped of his clothes, think about it, more than likely this Samaritan would have had to take some of the clothes that he was wearing or maybe extra clothes that he was carrying and, and tear off strips for bandages to bandage up the man's, the man's wounds, to cover his body. But he doesn't stop there. After he does his best to clean the man up, he loads the man up on his own animal, probably a, probably a donkey, and he brings him to an inn where he can better take care of him. Notice, too, that he doesn't just drop him off. Like, well, I've done my part. Innkeeper, why don't you take it, take it from here, right? He doesn't. He, he stays the night, Right? probably stays through the night to make sure that the man is stable. He's, maybe he's changing the man's bandages through the night, making sure that the guy is able to rest and begin healing. But he doesn't stop there. Once he realizes that the man is stable, after he does his best to clean him up, he, 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 he then goes to the innkeeper before he leaves, right? And he, and he pays the innkeeper two denarii, leaves him some extra money, and he says, he says, well, by the way, two denarii is the equivalent of two days' wages, okay? So he gives the, the innkeeper the equivalent of two days' wages and says, do whatever it takes to make sure that this man gets well. And if this money isn't enough, keep a tab for me, and when I come back, I'll pay the difference. Put it on my bill. 
Do you see, do you see what this Samaritan is doing? Do you see it? The Samaritan is caring for this man in the way that this Samaritan would want to be cared for. Do you see how this is tying to the original question? Right? In other words, he is loving the man as himself. Jesus is giving this lawyer an example of what it really looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Did the priest and the Levite love them, love the man the way that they would want to be loved? Not even close, right? Not even close. But this man, he displays a type of love that knows no bounds. How far would you go to save yourself in that situation? What expense would you spare to save your child in that situation? Jesus says, that's the type of love that I want you to expend towards those in need. It's a love that knows no bounds, and it's a love that reaches out even to our enemies. Whoa, right? Because we're, we're talking about Samaritan here and Jews. In verse 36, Jesus says to the lawyer, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the lawyer had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus asked the lawyer, well, which one proved to be a neighbor? Which one behaved like a neighbor? Which one was neighborly, right? It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. It was the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan. Jesus says, which one proved to be a neighbor? And in verse 37, the lawyer spoke. And listen, I, I like to picture him answering kind of like a mumble, quietly answering with his head hanging low here. This is what he said, verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> Jesus said, which, was it the priest, was it the Levite, or was it the Samaritan? It was the one who showed him mercy. He won't even say the Samaritan. He, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right, here? He says, this is the one who showed him mercy. And, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus raises the bar, doesn't he? It's not enough to just love your friends, your family, to those who are like you. Jesus calls us to love everyone. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anyone who is in need. That's my neighbor. Jesus calls us to love anyone in need. Jesus, Jesus looks at this lawyer and he says, now you go and do the same. Love others in the same way that this Samaritan showed Love. And getting back to the lawyer's original question, what was the original question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
He said, if you do these things perfectly, you will have eternal life. But what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done here is he's shown this man that he has not loved his neighbor. He's not like, well, well, who is my neighbor? And he said, trust me, you have not loved your neighbor. You haven't. And he's demonstrated that for him by, by this story. Just like all of us, this man had fallen short. And because he's disobeyed God's command to love his neighbor, guess what? He's also disobeyed God's command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's guilty. He's guilty just like all of us. This story from Jesus teaches us that that we cannot earn eternal life. You can't do it. Okay, so stop trying. Stop trying. The answer, what must I do to inherit eternal life is don't even try. Don't even try. You will never do enough to earn eternal life. None of us are able to do what's required here. We all fall short. But the good news, the good news that we refer to as the gospel, which means good news, is that it has already been done. It's already been done. Jesus did it. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He did it. And on top of that, he then paid the price for the sins that we committed that he did not commit. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place and he made a way possible for us to be restored into a right relationship with the God of the universe and thereby receive the gift of eternal life. See, what the Bible teaches is that eternal life is not something you earn. You don't earn it. It's a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace given to us through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That Samaritan was created for good works to love that man on the side of the road. That was something he was created for. By the way, the priest and the Levite were created to do the same thing. They just didn't do it. We are not saved. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And here's the thing. As we follow Jesus, right, and we follow his example... He is going to lead us where? He's going to lead us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? It's exactly what he did, and he's going to lead us in that same path. He's going to lead us to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the way he's going to lead us. And he's going to lead us to, to get up out of our seats today and to go out and do likewise, to go out and do the things that the, the good Samaritan did for others. That's where Jesus is going to lead us. 
Because that's the way Jesus lived, right? Jesus loved. We've been talking about Jesus' love all morning. Jesus modeled for us the type of love that he expects from us. Amen? Amen. So let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this story, the Good Samaritan. We thank you that that you, through this story, you show us how to truly demonstrate love. Your word says that, that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And you've called us to go out and demonstrate that type of love for others, not just for our friends, not just for our family, but for even our enemies. God, I pray that you would give us the strength to obey you and to show that type of love to the people around us. But more than that in this story, Jesus, I thank you that through this story, you you make it so clear that none of us are able to earn salvation through doing the things that, that the commandments require. We recognize that we all fall short. We thank you that you fulfilled the commandments perfectly and you've made a way possible for us to be reconciled to God, that our sins can be forgiven because of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. And God, I pray that this morning, if there's someone here who has never received the gift of grace, eternal life available through Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they turn their life over to you that they make you their Lord and Savior and begin following you so they can go out into this world and do the things that you did. And I pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.